Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving, serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into inner into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever and forever after the order of Melchizedek. May God bless the reading of his word. And now I want to invite Pastor Jeff up. When I moved to New York a few years ago, I was looking for an apartment. And rent in New York is incredibly expensive. Amen? <laughs> so much so that almost every listing that I looked at on sites like Craigslist or Street Easy or, or what have you had an income requirement. Basically, they, they needed to make sure that you could pay rent. And so the income requirement was something like 40 to 50 times the monthly rent. So for example, if, if rent was $1,500 a month, then you had to earn between $60,000 to $75,000 annually. If it was $2,500 a month, then you needed to make about hundred dollars to $125,000 a year. There's just no way that was happening. There, there was an option, however, of finding what they call a guarantor. Now, I'm not sure if it's as common here in Boston as it is in New York, but you know, if you basically, if you couldn't meet their income requirement, you could find someone to be this guarantor for you. Someone who will co-sign your lease and basically can guarantee payment on the lease if you yourself end up not being able to make the payment. But this guarantor had to make at least 80 to 100 times your monthly rent. Yeah. So if your rent was $2,500, then you'd have to find someone, maybe a, a family member or a family friend who made between $200,000 and $250,000. And that person really had to love you a lot and be gracious, so gracious enough to you to put themselves down as your guarantor. Because the idea is that it, it didn't matter uh, if I told this landlord, if we told this landlord, hey, we can pay, we have money. Uh, for some places, it didn't even matter if I offered to prepay a few months ahead. 
They needed someone who, according to their rules, could guarantee payment. And this guarantor would be someone who could do that, who would make enough not just to cover their own expenses, but yours as well, this lease, in case you you couldn't pay. This morning, as Natalie, our presider, said, we're starting part two of our sermon series. Jesus is better in the book of Hebrews. And this particular part is a better redemption. Part one was a better redeemer, right? And one of the things that we're going to see this morning is that our redemption in Christ is better because our redemption is guaranteed. It is certain. It is given by an oath-giving, promise-keeping God who we sang about and gave praise to this morning as Ted led us in worship. We continue from where we left off two weeks ago. We had a missions conference last week. We had just finished verses 1 to 8, so I'll give a brief review for those of you who weren't around or don't remember, which is okay. Uh, you know, our author was taking space in this letter, in this book, to address the problem of arrested spiritual development, which was marked by dull hearing and by spiritual infancy. And so he had started talking about the high priest, uh, the high priesthood of Christ, a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, and he diverged from going further because he wanted to take space to exhort and warn his readers and in us today to move on to maturity, right? Because the danger that he was so concerned with is not, not slowing down, but dropping out completely out of the Christian race. And after really laying it on thick about the seriousness of remaining as spiritual infants, only drinking milk and not solid food, some of you remember the the baby bottle that I brought uh, two weeks ago, he continues on in our passage today, verses 9 to 12. And so he writes, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And so, yes, our our author was admonishing all of us, his readers, uh, earlier about the serious danger of apostasy. But now he also wants to affirm his readers who are firmly founded in their faith. And this doesn't mean that the warning that that he, he gave before was pointless or unrealistic, but he was encouraging them not to be stagnant in their faith, to make spiritual progress, let's say, to, to move on to maturity. And what we see in these first few verses now is is that he's talking about a confidence that he has, that we can have with respect to our salvation, having the the full assurance of hope as we persevere to inherit the promises of God. And so why why can we have this full assurance of hope? When we're encouraged, exhorted to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises how can we know that this is not pointless? That this is not a futile endeavor? Again, it is because this hope that you and I have, this hope that we kept singing about, 
that our hope is built on nothing less. This hope is guaranteed. It is because these promises from God are guaranteed. In much the same way that, you know, everything I had to offer to secure an apartment meant nothing to these landlords, to these places, and I needed a guarantor. Right here in this passage, we will see that we can have full assurance of hope as we persevere to inherit the promises of God because God is our guarantor. He is the one who keeps his promises, not like us. Right? He is the one who will accomplish what he says. You know, our, our author does say that he feels sure of better things, in part because these struggling Christians are, are still serving the saints, right? That is, serving others. So it's a good sign. But ultimately, why is all this encouragement about persevering worth it? It's because the promises are sure and they're guaranteed because of God. And so our passage continues on in verses 13 to 15 with this example of Abraham. Right? He's, he's one of the very people, the author of Hebrews is, is exhorting his readers to imitate. He's pointing them, pointing them to. Verse 12, right? And that's because Abraham patiently waited and obtained the promise. And so these, these patriarchs, which we're going to see in, in a couple weeks when we hit chapter 11, these heroes of the faith, they received the promises, but depending on the promises, they didn't necessarily see their fulfillment, Right? And Abraham, perhaps, is the preeminent example of faith for us, for them, when it comes to promises. Do you remember going way back to the, to the Old Testament, the, the three promises that God gave to Abraham? Right? Land, descendants, blessing to the nations. Right? Do you remember, perhaps, how long Abraham waited just to have his son Isaac. It says he was 75 years old when God made him those promises in Genesis 12. And that's already incredible. Imagine, he's going to have a kid at that age. You know, fast forward a few chapters and it says he's 100 years old when Isaac was born. So 25 years as an old man waiting for just that first child of the promise. And we're not even talking about, you know, multiple children or grandchildren, much less, you know, seeing a multitude of descendants that would eventually become a blessing to the nations. He's just waiting for that, that first child. And here in our passage, it's, he's citing Genesis 22, 17 to 18, where God says, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply you, that is your, your offspring, as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so this is significant because if you, maybe perhaps are, you're in Genesis right now, you scroll up in your phones or in your pew Bibles, you flip back a few verses or a few pages, you're going to see that this is happening right after Abraham was called on by God to sacrifice his son Isaac. God was asking him to sacrifice the son of the promise, the, this one thing, the one person that would jeopardize the entire promise, the entire covenant that God had made with Abraham. But Abraham, 
was so confident in God's character, his word, that he obeyed without question, believing, as we're going to see in a couple weeks, that God would, if it came to it, he would raise Isaac from the dead and still keep that promise. Because God, in Abraham's mind, was faithful, was a promise keeper. Now, that promise that our passage is talking about this morning is our salvation. The hope that it comes with, too. Verses 16 to 18 continue on with with why our better redemption, part two, right, is a secured redemption. He says, for people like us, we swear by something greater than ourselves. In all our disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. That is that God's promise is guaranteed by his unchanging purpose, and this oath that he gives. When was the last time you broke a promise? Was it a, a promise to yourself? To God? To others? You know, maybe it was, you know, I promise to take out the trash. Or clean the dishes in the sink, which are still there at home waiting for you. Or, you know, I promise to, to wake up early enough to head to service in person. Or I promise not to do this or that again, right? We, we as sinful, fallen, frail, finite human beings, we make promises and then we break promises. Now, I feel like it's, you know, really in those old movies where you see those characters who say, my word is my bond, right? But nowadays, that doesn't mean anything. Right? You have people who flake All the time. We have things like contracts and written signed agreements. We have RCVP forms for everything, for ultimate, for events, for church cleanup next week. Please RCVP for everything. We have actions like uh, pinky swears, right? Pinky promises. And uh, we pay down deposits and we have guarantors and we have sayings like, you know, what my friends and I used to say when we were growing up as kids, you know, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. We swear by something else, not ourselves. We appeal to something greater than ourselves as a witness because of the uncertainty and unreliability of human words and human promises. And that's because of our sin. But here we find for God, it's different. When when God made a promise to Abraham, he had no one greater by whom to swear, so he swore to himself. You see, what follows is that if God swore by anything or anyone else, it would have implied that the thing by which he swore was greater than God, and that therefore God is not really God, and his word is more like a human's word, less than absolutely certain. Or, 
if the thing by which God swore was finite and fickle, then it would actually make his oath, his promise, more finite and fickle. Like imagine if God said to us, to you this morning, I swear on the person sitting next to you or the person that you last texted, that you, I swear on that person, him or her, that you can have full assurance of hope in your salvation. Look at that person. How confident are you in God's promise right now? Spouses don't answer that question. So, so God, right, being God, swore by himself. He reinforced Abraham's faith in the promise with an oath. An oath that really didn't need to be made because God's word cannot fail. God's word doesn't need to be strengthened, but God made his promise doubly secure for Abraham's sake. Because that's what we do as humans. We make oaths. And there are these two things that give us assurance and the guarantee of this promise. The unchangeable character of his purpose and this oath. Now, one of the important doctrines that uh, we, we talk about sometimes of the character of God is this doctrine of immutability, which is really just this fancy word for saying that God does not change. But it's such an important belief and understanding, right? For, for God not to change means that he cannot increase He cannot improve. He cannot grow. Because if God changes, he is changing for the worst, which is not good. Or if we say that he is changing for the better, it would imply that what he was before was not as good. And that's not good for us. So for God not to change is to say that in a sense that he is perfect. And when we talk about the immutability of God, this unchangeableness, it refers to his essence, his nature, his will, his character, and even his purpose. And purpose is what we see here this morning. So let me read you a passage from Isaiah. There it says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall to mind. You transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I would do it. God accomplishes all that he sets out to do. Now, I like what Kevin DeYoung says. He says, God is the only being in the entire universe who always completes his to-do list every day. Which one of us can lay claim to that? Not even me with all my spreadsheets and Trello boards and everything. This pastor, Kevin, he goes on to say, why, why can't we fully depend on each other, on human beings all the time? It's because there's flaws in our character, right? Because we change. You know, for example, I, he says, I am not always dependable because the Jeffness of Pastor Jeff is not always as good on Monday as it is on Sunday. But God, God's character does not change. 
His purpose does not change. His nature does not change. And because of this, we can have full assurance of hope. That he is constant even as we are inconsistent. He is faithful even as we are fickle. And so he says, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. What is the point of persevering if the promise is not guaranteed? That's the question in part that is laid out for us this morning. Like, why am I up here? Why are we up here almost every Sunday preaching through this sermon series in Hebrew about how Jesus is better, how we have a better Redeemer, a better redemption, preaching this message, exhorting all of us, being exhorted by God's Word to continue to run the race if the finish line may not be there. It's not guaranteed. If the promises are not certain, why run? then we of all people should be pitied because then we are no better than a hamster running on a wheel going nowhere and with no end in sight. But no, our our passage says we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Now, I don't particularly enjoy running, but when I do run, I much prefer doing it outside rather than on a treadmill because I can visualize where I'm headed. Right? I, can, I can see a clear picture and know that there's an end, whether it's a park or I'm running to Dunkin' Donuts uh, because America runs on Dunkin' or, or even the, the front steps to my apartment building. Right? It's there. I can see it. I know it's there. I can hold fast. God is our guarantor. He's the one who keeps his promises who accomplishes his purposes. And so because of him, we can have full assurance of this hope. And then our hope, this hope, our hope is an anchor for our souls. And so this is how our passage finishes this morning. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so for our hope to be an anchor for our souls means for, is that our hope is sure and steadfast, right? That this hope is secure. It is unwavering. I mean, this is what an anchor does, right? Now, I know in, in previous weeks, we, I, I brought objects along to help us picture it, right? I, I brought, you know, a, a laptop and a Blu-ray to, to think about those categories that are creating our minds. I brought, a, um, you know, almond milk in a, in a baby bottle last week to visualize. And, you know, I don't have an anchor. Uh, I literally Googled, you know, can I rent an anchor? <laughs> Which is a little expensive. But if any of you have a boat, come see me after service. And the next time I preach on this, then maybe we can make something work. But you're going to have to use your imagination this morning, right? Imagine this huge anchor with all these chains that you throw over the side of the boat. You hear the, the iron clink, clank, clink, clink as it, as it goes down into the sea, as it hits the bottom into the sands, right? It, this is what an anchor does, right? That in the face of changing tides and rising storms, 
an anchor is dropped into that sea and it helps the boat hold fast. Stay in place. Be secured. Now, I like, I like what one commentator put it. He, he notes a difference here, right? That uh, for sailors, the anchor is cast down into the depths of the sea. But our anchor ascends to the heights of the heaven. Because our hope, our anchor is Jesus Christ, our forerunner and high priest. Jesus here is described as a forerunner. Right? That, that means that he has, he has gone before. He goes first, but he has not left us. Unlike the, the previous Levitical high priest, he goes before in order to open up the way for us to follow after. Right? That significance of the veil being torn. Right? Aaron was a high priest, but he was no forerunner. Right? He did not make it so that others could follow him into the Holy of Holies. And we said in previous weeks that even then he could only go once a year. But Jesus, he is our hope and Savior, our forerunner. He's opened up a way for us so that though we were formerly excluded, we now in Christ have access to this real intimate relationship with God, to the real presence of God. And so we are encouraged, like we said in previous weeks, to draw near and not to draw back. Now, next week is the start of Advent. Advent uh, comes from the Latin word for, for coming. Right? So that's to say that when we think of, of Advent, we think of the coming of Christ. And for those of us who are living on this side of the cross, it begs the question, you know, which coming of Christ? His birth or his return? And like many of my Gordon Conwell professors said, the answer is yes. As we prepare for this season of Advent, I mean, yes, we, so we look back at the expectant waiting, the hopeful anticipation, the cheerful preparation of the promised Messiah coming into our world. But we also look towards Christ's return, promised return, with the same expectant waiting, hopeful anticipation, and cheerful preparation. This is a promise that we have been given. Now, later on, Natalie's going to highlight uh, one announcement for us, but I wanted to take some time to highlight it, but Minister Pat and I have, have purchased a couple of these Advent devotionals for us um, from Christianity Today, and we have a couple of Gordon Conwell professors that, that wrote a couple articles. And, and I think, like, I don't want to repeat and just steal Natalie's announcement, but I think it'll be a, a way for us to rest in that promise of Christ's return. There's stuff for families, too, and, and small groups in the, in the back of the book as well, and so you can probably pick it up later. But... Look, this, this promise, right, that our salvation is secure in Christ, who came to die on Calvary, it's promised that he will come again to reign over his kingdom. The last few words of our Bible, God's word, the book of Revelation, Jesus testifies, says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So Crossbridge, let us have the same earnestness that we're reading about this morning to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Let's pray. Heavenly God, we 
give thanks to you for your unchanging character and purpose. For you are a promise-keeping God. For our hope is built, thank God, thank you, not on ourselves, not on our finiteness and fickleness, but on you. And because of that, we can have confidence, assurance, peace, and comfort in our salvation, in the promises that you have made, and that we can look forward to the day when Christ returns and have hope now. Sustain us each and every day with this hope. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.